Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again. You may be seated. It's a grace to be together today, worshiping uh, together. We hope that you feel that way as well, to be running the race together, even though some among us are off running other races that they find more important. But at least we're here today, right? We get to be here. You are the faithful ones. No matter what time they get, you are here. That is a grace. It is a grace. But we hope that they're doing well, the few that are out running the pumpkin race today. Um, for those of you who are planning to go to, the, to, the, um, to watch the parade this afternoon, we do want to just, again, extend that invitation. We're using it as an opportunity for uh, reaching out to our community, but want to extend the opportunity that if, if you um, are going to watch it, stop by, get a hot drink, go to the bathroom, be ready to meet a, a friendly, with a friendly face, meet somebody new, because there's going to be those new there who others have invited, and, and join us um, in that down by the chaos uh, on State Street. So we want to just, again, extend that invitation to you. But again, here we are, we're worshiping the Lord. It's a grace to do so, and a grace particularly to turn to God's Word. And to do that now, as we pick up in this study on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, this series that we've been calling Rebuild, to continue to, to walk through these books, two books that record God's work among God's people of reviving hearts, and restoring life. And, and of God doing that at this particular time, at this particular point in his people's history, even though they were the ones who had walked away from him and were the ones who, who brought on themselves exile in a foreign land. And yet God in his great mercy and grace set about to bring them back and to rebuild his people after some 70 years in Babylon. And, and that's what these books are all about, God rebuilding his people, turning the hearts of one king after another to make it possible for them to return to him and return to him with their full lives, with their full selves. And we seen it done, right, in the days of Zerubbabel under King Cyrus. And then we saw it done again in the days of Ezra the priest under King Darius. And we've been seeing it even still in the days of Nehemiah under King Artaxerxes. Rebuilding their identity and their worship and their joy, rebuilding their confidence and conviction, rebuilding their action and their work, and which we're going to see today as he rebuilds their fear. Not typically something you would put on the list of things that need to be rebuilt, but is, in fact, what these two chapters are all about. That, that it is not only in fearing once more what we should, that we will ever fear no longer. God rebuilds fear in us to, to, to fear what we shouldn't, to not fear what we shouldn't. 
We're going to see it as we pick up again in this book of Nehemiah in chapters 5 and 6. To be free from fear. It's not only about not fearing what we shouldn't, but again, fearing what we should. And I want to, once again, begin by reading the opening section of these two chapters, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. Reading from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through to verse 9. And you can follow along with me as I do. This is God's word. It says this. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. We'll stop there for now, but before we consider these things, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today, even as we, even as we rip through these two chapters, as we, as we fly over the account of, of, of you instilling once again your fear in your people, And on the other side of that, of showing us what it looks like to be stripped of fear of anything else. I pray that even today you would work that same work in our lives. I pray that we would would fear you like we ought, hold you in awe, reverence you as you deserve. And that doing so through our Lord Jesus Christ we would fear nothing else. Pray you would do it for his honor, for our good, and for your glory. In his name we pray, amen. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. You know who said it? Do you remember? Franklin D. Roosevelt in his inaugural address, his his presidential inaugural address in 1933. 
three, right after the depression, ready to rally a country in a way that it desperately needed, saying the only thing as we look toward the future, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And yet, phobophobia, as it's called, the fear of fear, is only one of among upwards of 500 named fears that have appeared to date in reference works, journal articles, and medical papers. A list that includes everything from the pretty common acrophobia, the fear of heights, or arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, to the much less common xemophobia, the fear of the great mole rat. And everything in between, A to Z. Here's just a, a few of my favorites from, from the beginning of the list. There's allurophobia. Can you guess? It's the fear of cats. The fear of cats. What about anglophobia? It's the fear of the English or anything English. And owlophobia. Can you guess? It's the fear of Flutes, of all things. The fear of flutes is a named medical condition. The fear of flutes. And then there's the, the fear that all of us have in some shape or form. It's called coolerophobia. Do you know? The fear of clowns. Everybody, deep down in their souls, is afraid of clowns. And it's worth recognizing that these fears can be compounded. So, for instance, somebody may be afraid of clowns, but even more afraid of an English clown juggling their flute-playing cat. You would be. You would be. You would run to the regular clown if that clown was walking down the street at you. And yet the question we really ought to be interested in is not how fears can become compounded, but rather how they can be relieved. Unless you're some maniacal psychopath, most of us are more interested in relieving fear than compounding it. The thing that you have to realize, though, is that the thing that's so interesting is that in many cases, the fear of one thing is only relieved by the fear of another. Did you get that? That the, the fear of one thing in many cases is only relieved by the fear of another. So, for instance, if I was to take uh, Jessica, did Jessica leave? If I was to take Jessica here and to walk her up to the top of the, the, the Sears Tower or whatever you want to call it these days. If I was to walk her up to the top of the Sears Tower and, and stretch a beam out over Chicago and ask her to walk on out over it. You'd think I was nuts, right? It wouldn't help if the wind kicked up a bit and the rain was coming down, right? Not even for a million bucks. But if I asked Jessica to do that, and unbeknownst to her in the middle of that, miles wandered off onto that beam before her, it wouldn't take much to get her out there herself. Why? Because again, the fear of one thing is relieved by the fear of another. Because sometimes, right, that's how it works. 
which is not only something we learn from everyday life, but something we learn in the Bible. And not least in these two chapters in Nehemiah, that it is only in fearing once more what we should, that we will ever fear no longer what we shouldn't. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, and specifically at how the, the fear of God relieves the fear of everything else. The fear of God relieves the fear of everything else. So first, we'll look at the fear of God, and then we'll look at how it relieves the fear of everything else. First, the fear of God, which is the focus of Nehemiah chapter 5, both in, as the driving force in Nehemiah's life and, and what he hopes would be the driving force in the lives of others. And the focus begins with his hope for others. And you see it in those verses we read from already, with this outcry of the people in verse 1, and then with Nehemiah's response beginning in verse 6. The outcry that in the, the midst of a famine, some of Nehemiah's own people were, were taking advantage of those less fortunate than themselves. Taking advantage so that not only verse 2 were some crying out, let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive, but that to do so, others were saying in verse 3, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses. And then still others were saying that they'd gone so far, verse 5, as forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but what? But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Again, this outcry that some of Nehemiah's own people, their Jewish brothers and sisters, were taking advantage in a time of dire need of those less fortunate than themselves. So that when the, the price of grain was inflated by the demand caused by a famine, the more privileged people seized the opportunity to loan out money to those in need at exorbitant rates which meant that many found it necessary to, to mortgage their property to survive. And some had even gone so far as to force their family members into slavery to cover the debts. And I shudder at the statement, and some of our daughters are already enslaved. Which is to be expected in some sense among those who don't know God. In this dog-eat-dog -dog world in which you do whatever it takes to get ahead and build your kingdom by whatever means necessary on the backs of whichever poor soul is necessary just to get the job done. It's expected in this shark tank type of world. But this, this is happening among those who should have known better among those whose ancestors had been slaves before and who themselves had been living like slaves in Babylon not too long ago. So there's an outcry of the people, like there had been in the days of Moses, an outcry that elicits Nehemiah's response. Look at it in verse 6 where he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I was very angry, which is right of him, because Nehemiah's anger here simply reflects the anger of God. Because God had said, 
to those who had cried out to him under Pharaoh that if they turned to oppress others, this is in Exodus 22, and made others cry out as they had, God would surely hear those cries and his wrath would burn against them. Just like it had burned against Pharaoh for doing it before them. The first example God gives, if you turn back to those pages in Exodus, of what oppression looks like, lending money to the poor, like any other money lender, and exacting interest from those who can't even pay the principal. So Nehemiah says in verse 7, I took counsel with myself, very likely, pouring over these very passages and, and those passages like these. And he says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Not just angry, but I brought charges against them. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And he says, I held a great assembly against them, which is interesting. Because the word assembly here is just the, the Hebrew word for church. I had a church service. That's what we did when, when, when brothers were exacting interest from others. We had a church service. Can you imagine we had a church service? Maybe we ought to have a church service when some of us get out of line. Maybe that's what church is about. He had a church service. It's one way to grow it, right? He had a church service against them, saying, don't miss the fact, though, either, that, that, that he has this church service right in the middle of a building project. That's one way to go, right? One step further. I mean, there's not just the type of church that does this. They're in the middle of a building project, bringing the whole thing, which is the whole reason he's there in the first place, the whole reason he left his homeland. The whole reason he came, bring the whole thing to a screeching halt. Why? Because what good, right, is an external wall if all it's doing is protecting and propagating and perpetuating an internal problem? The whole thing has to stop. The project is for the people, right, not the other way around. So he calls a church service, verse 8, and said to them, what? We, as far as we are able have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And he says, they were silent and could not find a word to say. I would have been too if I had walked into a service like that. It was about me. I would have been too. And so like any other good ad hoc preacher, Nehemiah goes on, he says, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Why? Because this is his hope. This is his hope. This is his expectation that the fear of God would be the driving force in the lives of others. To make it easier on him? that he didn't have to buy back everyone that they were selling off? No. Like he says at the end of the verse, first and foremost, in order to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies, the taunts against their God. 
Because in taking advantage of the helpless, God's people were functionally painting a picture to those around them of a God who would do the same. Do you get that? Because get it, as a people of God, as the people of God, all of life, all of your life paints a picture of the God you serve. And especially when it it comes to how we treat one another, our brothers and sisters in the faith, we're, we're painting a picture of God. Because the natural conclusion when the siblings can't get along is that they learn how to treat each other from their parents. For those in Nehemiah's day who were taking advantage of those less fortunate than themselves, they were painting a picture of a God who was as compassionless as they were. And of a God who likewise cared only for himself. And they were not, as they ought to have been, fearing God which definitely meant that they were lacking this sense of awe and reverence of of what God had done for them, that that, that he had brought them up out of the land of slavery and, and brought them into a land of salvation, just like he had brought their foreparents before them in the time of Moses. That should have been enough to straighten them out. But the fear of God probably in this context means a little more. It also, in a sense, means that they were not appreciating what God might do to them if they continued in that way, which I know on our side of the theological divide is a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little bit uncomfortable to follow all the other passages that, that, that warn us about God, what, what God will do if we don't follow him the way we should. That we were meant to reflect God and God's character and how we live and how we live with one another. But that if we don't, we will prove that we never were of God. And we'll get kicked out like they did before. So Nehemiah says, do you not fear God? Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Because this, again, is the, his hope for others, that the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, would be a, the driving force in their lives. The driving force in their lives. And you can see it beginning in verse 14 that it's not just the driving force he hopes for them, it's the driving force in his own. Again, beginning in verse 14 when Nehemiah says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, 12 whole years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Former governors who were before me, he says, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver, about two and a half pounds of silver every day. And he says, even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. 
the driving force in his life. Not what the world thought, not what his people thought, but what God thought. Like Emmett at one of his last soccer games who, who came over to the sidelines after the game and I said to him, how many of the other parents were, were, were commending him for the job he had done in that particular game? And he didn't care. He wanted to know what I thought. He wanted to know what his dad thought. Well, similar, Nehemiah wants to know what daddy thought it's all he cared about and nehemiah goes on in verse 16 to explain further what that fear looked like he says i also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work nehemiah's servants on nehemiah's tab moreover there were at my table listen to this 150 men Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. How's that for reflecting the character of God? Want to know what someone's heart is like? Look at where their treasure is. Look at where they put their money. Look at where Nehemiah puts his money. 150 Jews and officials and those who just showed up from the nations around us. Now what I was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Man, I would start cutting my friend list down. It's just too much. Yet for all this, Nehemiah says, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. And the only thing he does is floss his way through Jerusalem, right? Is dab his way down the wall, right? The only thing he does is do the nay-nay all over town. No, what does he say? The only thing I did was I prayed, remember for my God, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. He doesn't name part of the wall after himself. He doesn't take a section of the city and declare it his own. He doesn't put, you know, proudly sponsored by on all the, all the bricks that he was responsible for. He just prays to God, remember it for my good. Why? Because of the fear of God. The fear of God that he hoped would be the driving force in the lives of others. Why? Because it was the driving force in his own. That's the fear of God. What it looks like in the life of a believer. But let's look second, and we're only going to do it briefly. Let's look second at how the fear of God relieves the fear of everything else. Right? Because it's grace that teaches the heart to fear, but grace, our fears, relieved. But you can see as we turn to Nehemiah chapter 6, and this unholy trinity of troublemakers shows up once again to deter Nehemiah from the work. And they start by, by trying to lure Nehemiah away from the work that they might do him harm. That's what we read in verse 2. And yet it doesn't work. 
two, three, four times, or even the fifth time when they try to publicly defame him. When Sanballat writes this public letter that verse 6, Nehemiah was doing the work because he wished what? Right there at the end. To become their king. Ugh. Ugh. To become their king. Can you imagine what that would have made Nehemiah feel? When they try to use the, the fear of self to undo him. When they attack his character and label the work as self-serving. But it doesn't work. No matter what they're whispering behind the scenes or whatever rumors they try to start, no matter how much they, they want to say the work is about him or, or how much they want to say it's about his pursuit of whatever they say he was going after. And no matter how much, verse 9, they wanted to frighten him. See it there? Why? Because the fear of God had relieved the fear of self. Had dispelled the fear of self. And Nehemiah knows better what he's living for. And we know better too. I mean, just look at his life. You want to know if someone's living for himself, look at his life. Not Nehemiah. He's given up the comfort of a palace, taken up residence in the pits. He's rejected the governor's allowance 12 years on. Instead, is paying for much of the work out of his own pocket. Why? Because true shepherds sacrifice themselves for the sheep. Sacrifice they make because they are themselves sheep. We are all sheep of a greater shepherd. And we know that greater shepherd will take care of his sheep and take care of the shepherds under him. So the fear of God relieves the fear of self. It also relieves the fear of death, which is where this goes next. When in verse 10, Nehemiah goes into the house of this guy named Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, uh, the son of Mehetabel, Mehetabel, I don't know what it is, who it says was confined to his home. So he's somehow lame, somehow not able to get out, but who ironically says to Nehemiah, let's go meet together in the house of God within the temple. Apparently not as confined to his house as he appeared. And says, let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. So let's go to the temple. The fear of death. They are coming to kill you. But I said, verse 11, should such a man as I run away? A man that God has called to do God's work. What would that say about God? But on the other hand, what man such as I, he goes on, could go into the temple and live? Called to do God's work, yes, but not to do God's work in there. I'm not allowed to. Because I am Nehemiah. I am just a man. And just because I work for God does not mean I have the right to make presumptions of God. Neither one, then, is an option. Not to, no, not to run away or run into the temple. In both cases, he's saying, the fear of God constrains me. 
and relieves the fear of death. Why? Because to be struck down by someone else is not really what death is about. It's about whether God strikes me down or whether God upholds me and violate him who can live. But the fear of God dispels the fear of death. And that's what this is about, as Nehemiah says in verse 12, and I understood, verse 12, and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had, Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid. But again, the fear of God dispels the fear of death, as just as it dispelled the fear of self. And, and Nehemiah says in verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days, which you might not find amazing, but if you understood all that went into that and all that that took, you would find amazing. So much so that you would, you would look at it as the surrounding nations did. That you would look at it and, and see as they did that this was the work of God. And so what does it say? That all the nations around us were afraid. Not us, but them. Because they saw that this was the work of God. So they were afraid. Because they realized this game of chicken, they weren't going to win. It's like, the story that's been told in relation to this passage elsewhere of a, of a U.S. naval ship that found itself in a radio conversation with Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland, who asked the Canadian uh, to, to please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. To which the Canadians responded, we recommend that you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. To which the Americans then replied, this is the captain speaking. This is the captain of the USS Lincoln. This is how the story goes. The second largest ship in the United States, Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. To which the Canadians said, this is a lighthouse, your call. You can't play chicken with an immovable object like that. Even less so, you can't play chicken with God. So they're afraid, and not him. No longer his people. But listen to how the chapter concludes. Because the threat of fear does not end just because God's enemies are afraid. And this is worth seeing. So Nehemiah says in verse 17, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. You remember Tobiah, one of that unholy trinity of troublemakers. 
For many in Judah, it says in verse 18, were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. First time we hear about it, Tobiah is embedded in this society. Also, they spoke of his good deeds, these who knew Tobiah. In my presence, he says, and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters, what? How does the chapter end? To make me afraid. So on top of the fear of self and the fear of death, you can add to it the fear of man, the continual fear that, that lurks behind all of it. That man or, or God's enemy that so easily uses man for his purposes. That man might yet do something to me that God did not intend or that God could not stop. Isn't this at the heart of so much of what we fear? Clowns included. But it's quite the place to end. Isn't it? With the fear of God dispelling so many fears, yet which seemingly leaves fear lurking in the shadows. Which has got to raise the question, why? Why in the story here? With Tobiah still sending letters to make me afraid. Why cut the story short? With no but God, or but the fear of God, with the fear of man having the last word. Do you get that? Do you see how awkward it is? And, and though there's more to come in this book, let me just tell you that this is where it ends. Nothing actually overcomes this in the book of Nehemiah. It is left undealt with. Even though we're going to cover more in the, the weeks ahead and we're going we're gonna to continue to walk through the story and some, some, some major things that God continued to do on behalf of God's people. It's not all dealt with. It ends like it ends here. But why end with the fear of man having the last word? Let me just suggest once more as I've already suggested in this series before that it's because this story of Nehemiah is meant to point to the story of another. And it's meant to point beyond itself to, to, to a, a time when the fear of God would not only dispel all fears of anything else, but actually undo those fears and do it in the person of a man named Jesus who would come as the, the wisdom of God incarnate, the, the fear of the Lord, beginning to the end, all the way to the cross. And take, take on all the fears of, of self that we face and, and, and the fear of death on top of it. And to take on himself the, the fear of man and what man can do to us and what the enemy of man does through us and, and, and through that actually save man in the process so that dying the death we deserve on the cross 
and receiving the crown in the resurrection. Those who are found in him might fear him in an entirely new way. And fearing him in in awe and wonder and reverence for what he's done, ultimately fear nothing else. Because there's nothing left to fear. Not even fear itself. So let me just ask you, before we leave, what is your fear? What are you most afraid of? it the oncoming political scene, the debates that are going on right now on one side of the political divide, or perhaps it's the side that's already in office? Is it something else? The fear of the men or women in your life that that they're somehow going to do something that God did not see coming or God cannot stop or God cannot undo? What are you afraid of? Is it just clowns? Spiders? Heights? Or something much more? Something compounded and deep that you cannot deal with on your own? Let me invite you, seeing what God has accomplished in Jesus, knowing what Jesus went through and how he came out the other side, and how he has paved the way for anyone in him to do the same, let me invite you to lay down at the feet of the cross, looking through to the resurrection, and the resurrection yet to come. Let me invite you to take those fears to him. To take whatever it is, whether it's growing up your kids, or watching someone you love, get pretty close to the end of their life themselves. Whatever it is, whatever petrifies you in in some way, know that it's just a phobia. It's what the Harvard Medical Society calls just an extensive, ingrained, but irrational fear. How much more so for those in Jesus that these things no longer need to stand because of what Jesus did on our behalf. Let me invite you to lay those down and take this week even to to write those out, list it out, the, the three or four that petrify you from doing anything on behalf of God or anything at all. Write them down and take them to the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you today for the work of Jesus. The work of Nehemiah that pointed forward to the work of Jesus. And the work that you began long before that, way back when we got kicked out of where we were made for to begin with. I ask that seeing Jesus as the answer to fear we would fear you all the more. We would hold you in awe and reverence. That we would care more about what you think than about what anybody thinks around us.
more than what we think. That ultimately fearing you as we should, we would fear nothing else. All those things that we shouldn't. I pray that it would be so in Jesus' name. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.